Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Gregory Scott Brown talking about mental health. You know, a funny thing happens when you ask people about mental health, the things that generally come to our mind are often really mental illness. We think about things like anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts. Mental health is about being mentally healthy. And the way that we support our mental health is through self-care. Self-care is one of those buzzwords that a lot of people are talking about and we may have some preconceived notions about, but Dr. Brown breaks it down into five key pillars and walks readers through how those can support our mental health. His new book, The Self-Healing Mind, is a great guide to those pillars. And he's on the show today to talk to us about those five pillars of self-care and how parents can incorporate those into our families and support our teenagers' mental health. Dr. Brown is a board-certified psychiatrist and affiliate faculty member at the University of Texas Dell Medical School. His commentary has been featured in the New York Times, Huffington Post, and today he is our guest on the Talking to Teens podcast. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being here. I loved your book, The Self-Healing Mind, an essential five-step practice for overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. Yeah, you got me thinking about a lot of stuff in here. I'm super excited to dive into it. I'll tell you, we're all thinking about mental health, but we're not talking about it enough. So I'm just so happy we're having this conversation. Well, so what led you to write this book or, or what kind of was the impetus that, that, that got you on this path? I actually started writing this book during... Uh, the COVID pandemic. And I'll tell you, that's a time that uh, really changed, I think, the way most of us think about mental health. I think before the pandemic, some people might have thought, okay, there are people who are depressed, there are people who are anxious. But then during the pandemic, it's like social distancing, we're all staying at home, we're scrolling through social media, and we're definitely feeling the impact more. I thought that that was, my life changed personally, too. Again, uh, prior to the pandemic, I was going to the office, I was meeting with uh, my patients there. And during the pandemic, I found myself uh, using a lot more video calls and, and telemedicine. I had some more time on my hands. And I thought, what better way to really communicate to more people about mental illness and mental health than to write a book about it? That's one thing actually uh, just that, that I found really interesting in your book is sort of defining mental health. What does that mean? And, and it was really interesting to me kind of thinking through this that, well, a lot of the things we think of when we think of mental health are actually really not health at all. And there's a difference there because the thing is, when you think about physical health, if you just mention those two words, most people will think about, okay, I need to eat healthy. I need to, right, working out, taking care of my body. But then when you mention these words, mental health, I, I find at least most people start thinking about depression, anxiety, suicide, right, which are all really important topics, but there's not really that same type of motivation to take care of that the way we would necessarily take care of our, our physical health. 
I challenge readers here in the book to really distinguish between mental illness, which are these diagnosable things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, and mental health, which is really the driving force that motivates us, that determines the quality of our relationships, how we interact with each other, how we love. That's really what mental uh, health is all about. I love that. Yeah, it just, uh, it seems like feel, they feel synonymous, mental health and mental illness, but they shouldn't be. It's a totally different concept. Right. I mean, the, and the, the thing the thing to keep, a, the, to keep in mind here is that if we're focusing on our mental health, right, we are also reducing our risk for developing mental illnesses like depression or generalized anxiety disorder or what have you. But Again, even if you're not diagnosed or you've never been diagnosed with a mental illness, a mental health is still something that, that is valuable that we should all be paying attention to. Well, talk to me about this title, what, The Self-Healing Mind. That's kind of um, counter to what, what you do as a psychiatrist. You help people heal their mind, right? Are you, if the mind can self-heal, then you're putting yourself out of business here. <laughs> Well, I mean, in, in, in some ways, that would be great. Imagine imagine if suicide didn't exist in, in the world and no one was depressed and no one was, was anxious. I mean, I think that would, be, that would be something that we would all welcome. But when you're really diving into what the title is implying here uh, and what I intended by the title is that there are a lot of things that we ourselves can do to help the mind heal, right? And I uh, talk about the five pillars of self-care in the book sleep, spirituality, nutrition, breath work, movement. Uh, I mean, these are things that we all potentially have access to if we're alive and if we are listening to this podcast and we have a brain, right? It doesn't cost a, a penny to breathe. Uh, it doesn't cost anything to move our body, even if we're doing some stretches in our chair. And there's tons of evidence supporting that these simple strategies that may seem like common sense, if we utilize them the right way, they have powerful healing uh, potential when it comes to improving uh, our mental health. Something really profound to me is you talk about this this idea that we could take a drug that's going to like make us feel better and sort of the, the the problems with that. I really love some of the stories that you have in the book, some, some examples from some clients that you've worked with, but um, kind of that seems to be like a theme. We want to feel better. We don't want to feel these feelings because they, they don't feel good. And But you really kind of got me thinking about it in a deeper way that, that maybe there's a reason we're feeling those things. Just erasing them isn't necessarily the answer. Right. I mean, and, and the thing to keep in mind to this idea of broken brains and chemical imbalance is also timely. I mean, we're coming on the 35th anniversary here of the FDA approving Prozac for uh, depression, right? So the Prozac revolution, this idea that, and again, nothing wrong with Prozac. I prescribe Prozac almost every week uh, for my patients. It's, it saves a lot of lives, right? Um, but this idea that, that, that if, if we take a pill, that's just going to automatically erase uh, all of our problems. It's going to erase our experience with anxiety. Uh, it's going to erase any negative or unwanted moods we may experience is, is a fallacy. It's not necessarily true. When I'm talking to my patients who are struggling, uh, I often describe to them that being depressed or being anxious is kind of like being stuck in a ditch. A medication like an antidepressant is kind of like a ladder that can help you get out of that ditch. But then 
it's a matter of you know, these self-care strategies that I talk about that's going to help you stay out of the ditch. And sometimes you need self-care plus medication. Sometimes medication or self-care alone will do it. But we should not under, uh, undermine the importance of self-care. It's very important to to help sustain mental health. Yeah, I love that metaphor. <laughs> so as a parent, looking at your teenager and just seeing them being in pain or seeing them struggle with something, I think it's just, you just want, want them to feel better. <laughs> you want to make them help. How do I just help them stop stop feeling bad? I wonder what you think is how we could reframe that or or what, what's a more productive kind of uh, way to approach it or think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an excellent time, I think, to get people really not only thinking about mental health, but talking about it. I would say those those teenage years uh, in particular are, are uh, really uh, uh, important years as far as uh, getting conversations going. I would say communication is probably the most important thing. I think when, I mean, especially when you, when you think about something like suicide, Right. Unfortunately, there are over 140 suicides on average every day in the United States alone. And there is something called the suicide contagion effect, which uh, essentially means if a teenager, or young person, although you can't see this in adults uh, as well, but if a young person uh, learns about a suicide through the media or they have a classmate uh, who dies by suicide, then um, certain uh, certain populations might be a little bit more vulnerable to mimicking the act, right? The thing is, oftentimes parents uh, are nervous, and duly so. I mean, during those periods, they're afraid to have conversations with their kids. Yeah, so then we shouldn't talk about it. So, <laughs> But the thing is, research actually shows that there's certain ways to have those conversations, and that if we're having those conversations where we're talking to our kids, about mental illness or even something as unfortunate suicide. Uh, we're not glorifying the deceased, right? We want to make sure that we're not doing that and that we're encouraging our kids to speak up and to ask us uh, for help if they need it, that it actually reduces their risk of mim uh, mimicking that type of, of behaviors. Uh, conversations are really, really, really important with our kids, especially when it comes uh, to mental health and mental illness. Tips that you think parents could keep in mind in in having conversations around suicide that that are more more productive or more likely to lead to those positive outcomes. Right. And, and again, just just to reiterate this, so the the most important things are we don't want to glorify the deceased. So they're if they're coming to us and they're talking about, hey, I have a friend that I learned about in school. This is something that happened. That again, we're allowing our kids to process the event with us, but we're not, again, glorifying uh, the person's life or the manner in which they died by suicide. We want to make sure that we're avoiding that. We want to make sure also that we are uh, encouraging our kids to uh, get help, to ask for help if they need it. We're talking about a meeting with therapists, meeting with the school counselor, meeting with the psychiatrist and normalizing that. Saying This is something that a lot of people a lot of people need. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're not strong. Um, it's the right thing to do. And again, if we're uh, teaching our kids that at an early age, then we're preparing them for some of these challenges they may face in their lives as they get older. 
Talk about self-care. You've mentioned a few times now in the five pillars, right? Also, you uh, you talk in the book about just how self-care kind of has some connotations around sort of, uh, I love this paragraph you have here. It often evokes images of spending a weekend at a, at a spa or high-priced holistic medicines. There's kind of some, I don't know, connotations that we have around self-care. What, what do you really mean by that? Or uh... I would be the first to acknowledge I love a good spa and I love a good massage. So, hey, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But we want to make sure that when we think about self-care, that we're not characterizing it as this elitist sport and saying that you have to have money for self-care or self-care is only a reward for, for hard work. I'll burn myself out. And then if I work hard enough or earn enough money or whatever it is, or get the promotion, then I'll, then I'll take some time for self-care. Uh, now I deserve it. Yeah. Right. Right. So self-care is actually, and, and this is really important. I mean, if you take anything away uh, from, from this episode, self-care is evidence-based medicine. Even if I mean, each of us take, we take between 20 and 30,000 breaths every single day, right? And with each inhale and exhale, we are potentially increasing GABA in our brain. That is a neurotransmitter chemical that helps us relax. It helps us slow down. It helps us feel a sense of calm and peace. We're enhancing alpha wave activity in the brain. These are physiologic markers of relaxation and rest. But we have to learn how to manipulate our breath in a way that can actually do that, right? Self-care is something that we should definitely not take for granted. I love how in your chapter on breath, you talk about how breath affects the nervous system. I thought that was really d- interesting to see some of the research on the links there, just how connected it is. Right. Again, with, with breath, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the stories I have from, I was covering a, an inpatient unit when I was living in Austin. And I'll tell you that I got a call from one of the nurses that a patient had come in. She was having a panic attack and the nurse was asking me for a medication to help help her relax right and almost reflexively as doctors will okay the order and then go on about our day but i remember on this particular day i was just starting to learn about some of the science behind the different breathing exercises four seven eight breathing pranayama breath coherent breathing that i outlined in the book and i remember i went down to this patient's uh, bedside and i sat with her and we actually practiced uh, some of these techniques together and within a matter of five minutes i mean she was she was calm she was relaxed and she didn't need the medication right and again it's not to undermine or devalue medications like i, I prescribe medications uh, they definitely have their place but so does self-care and it's important for people to realize uh, that they can have a profound effect. Yeah, because I find just it's like when you when you find yourself feeling anxious and stressed out, all of a sudden I notice my breathing is is really like I'm kind of almost panting a little bit or take, taking more kind of shallow breaths. So it's like it's obvious that there is a link between our our nervous system and our breath. But I think we maybe yeah we don't give it enough credit or, or realize that we can take control of it. And I think it's also important that we don't we don't wait. For ourselves to have a panic attack or to hyperventilate to practice some of this stuff. I mean, if you're going through the book, I mean, anyone who's uh, tried a yoga class before will 
kind of understand what I'm talking about. I mean, if you just go into yoga class and you're not, and you're flowing through this sequence and you're not paying attention <laughs> to your breath, I mean, it doesn't really matter how in shape you are. I mean, it's going to be a lot more difficult. I mean, you'll find yourself gasping for air, right? One of the things that I like so much about yoga, it's that you, it brings you into this state of conscious awareness where you're connecting breath with movement. So your yoga teacher will often uh, instruct about how to breathe. Um, your yoga teacher might talk about pranayama breath uh, during the class. So as you flow, you're consciously aware of those breaths. And I find that uh, being able to practice that type of breathing on the mat, off the mat, in between patients for me, in between meetings, uh, actually help helps me in those moments where I do find myself anxious or hyperventilating or gasping for air because I've been through this what seems like hundreds of times. So again, it's okay to practice it uh, before you get to that point where you actually need it. And I like how in the book you really provide sort of a, a toolkit of different breathing techniques that people can try out and use. It's not about, hey, here's how you should breathe or here's what you should do. It's really about kind of yeah exploring how, how, what that connection is and, and how different ways of breathing can actually change your mood or um, change the way that you're feeling. And, and by kind of getting all these things in your arsenal, it's like you're getting equipped with yeah yeah more, more strategies that you can use, um, which is really powerful. Right. I mean, the other thing that breath work does is in those moments where we feel like, oh, where we're, we're at the end of our fuse, we're going to lose our cool, or maybe we're feeling tired or, or whatever it is. So breath work uh, can kind of buy ourselves some time in those moments and give the perception that things are, just, things are just slowing down. And you can often see just buying yourself three, four, five minutes uh, with breath work uh, can end up changing the entire tone of a conversation, could change the entire tone uh, of your day. What do you think is a good way for parents to introduce this to teenagers or to or to maybe model you know, this, some of these self-care things, but with breathing, maybe it's something you could kind of do together almost. Or, uh... I totally agree with you. Yeah. Doing it, doing it together. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the beautiful thing about this is this, the, the book and the techniques in the book, they have no age limit, right? I've had, I've had folks that I've, I've spoken with my patients who told me they practice some of this stuff with their kids. My dad, who's in his 80s, likes to use 478 breathing. I mean, that's one of his favorite uh, techniques, out of all the techniques that are there in the book. But I think it, it's, it's definitely something that, that you can do together. 478 breathing is a great thing to do before bedtime uh, with our kids to help them just kind of settle in. Right. Uh, maybe doing a couple of rounds of that uh, together. But yeah, I mean, start start where you can. Oh, I like that. Yeah, there's a number of things in here, actually, that could be incorporated into like a wind down routine at the end of the day that would, I think, yeah, yeah is really powerful. And yeah, a great way to just start every day kind of reinforcing these behaviors and, 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 and modeling that as as a way to to calm yourself or change your emotional state. It's all it's all about social and emotional learning, too. I mean, self-care is really helping and instill those those skills uh, within our kids uh, as well as within us. We're here today with Dr. Gregory Scott Brown talking about the five pillars of self-care and how those can support our teenagers' mental health. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Teenagers, not unlike 
adults, they're curious, they're exploring. I mean, the most important thing is to be there to answer their questions. Again, to encourage conversation is so healing. If there's resistance to explore where that resistance is, is coming from. Maybe it's coming from a conversation or something someone said to them at school or something they read in a book or saw on TV. I think it's important that we're talking to kids. There's a study that found that patients who were depressed, who continued their treatment as usual, but changed the way they ate to include more of a Mediterranean diet, had better outcomes when it came to improving their depression. We can change our mood or start changing our mood by beginning to change what's on our plate. So sleep and, and mental illness, they have a bi-directional relationship. They affect each other. But for whatever reason, it's like we don't spend as much time being as intentional as we could about sleep. Making sure the room is, is cool enough, that it's not too hot. I mean, these are things that can uh, improve sleep quality uh, as well. Something that's also important when we're talking about kids is, is screen time too. Seems like it's cliche at this point, but there's there's science behind it. Green and blue wavelengths of light that are emitted from our televisions and smartphones actually make it more difficult for melatonin to be released in the brain. That can inhibit sleep quality as well. Want to hear the full episode? Head over to TalkingToTeens.com slash register for a free trial of our premium podcast. You get exclusive access to loads of great content with no obligation. And your membership supports the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Get started today with a free trial over at TalkingToTeens.com slash register. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.